Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Ogletree's Workplace Health and Safety Podcast. This podcast is going to be a little bit different than our normal podcast in as much as we've got my good friend and immigration partner, Lee Ganshin, involved. Lee's got a real unique skill set. She's resident in our Houston office. She's a, a wonderful human being and a great person to practice law with. Lee, welcome to the podcast. If, if you would, would you give a little introduction of yourself to our audience? Yes, I'd be happy to. I've been at Ogletree for over 11 years now, but I've practiced immigration law for coming up on 25 years. I started my law school training in Washington, D.C. and finished it there and went on to work for the Department of Justice. So embarking on the topic we're about to embark on is very exciting for me because uh, we're going to talk a lot about the alphabet soup uh, that's so prevalent in Washington, D.C. and all the different agencies that are there So, and, and how they're interacting. So this is a, a real treat for me. Well, it's a real treat for us to have you here and, and, and thank you for agreeing to come on and, and talk with us. So you and I wrote a, a blog post about the Memorandum of Understanding, Memo of Understanding, MOU, that was signed by the Secretary of Labor and Assistant Secretary of Labor, OSHA, that gave OSHA compliance officers the ability to certify T and U visas. Could you explain for our audience what T and U visas are and how they've traditionally been used? Yes. Back in uh, 2000, uh, Congress passed something called the Victims of Trafficking and Violence Protection Act. And that law created two types of visas that are available to certain victims of crimes. The U visa, like the letter U, uh, is a non-immigrant visa, which means temporary as opposed to permanent, which is a green card. The U visa provides legal status to victims of uh, certain crimes that are listed out within the law, and they have to prove that they have suffered substantial physical or mental abuse, and they possess information concerning that crime, and they're likely to be helpful to law enforcement or government officials. That's, That's key language. So the T, as in the letter T visa, also provides legal status to certain victims, but what they're victims of is human trafficking in its various forms. And again, here, it's not enough just to assert that you're a victim of human trafficking, but you've also got to assist law enforcement authorities as they investigate and prosecute those trafficking crimes. Following on that answer, let me ask you about the cooperation requirement. Is that an ongoing obligation of cooperation or is that sort of a, you've cooperated now, that's all you need to do. Now you have your T or U visa. That's right. So 
the cooperation requirement is definitely ongoing. And as I mentioned, both of these visas are issued for a limited period of time and individuals who get them are going to want to stay in the U.S. typically for the rest of their lives and they'll need a green card. And in order to follow the path that you start on with one of these visas to get the green card, you have to show that you are continuing to cooperate with the government if the government asks you to. Traditionally, how many of the T and U visas are issued or used in any given year? So this is interesting. Uh, in, in immigration law, we're, we're always asking that question. What is there a limit? How many are available and, and what are the parameters on that? So for the T visas, the trafficking victim visas, um, the government allows 5,000 visas per year. The victim's qualifying family members are eligible also for the, these visas, but they don't count towards that annual cap. In terms of the T visa, the annual cap has never been reached. So they've never gone beyond 5,000 per year. The U visa, though, for the crime victims is another story entirely. It's quite interesting, the comparison. So it provides double that of the T visas, so 10,000 visas per year. Also, family members are eligible, but they're not counted towards that 10,000 cap. And the cap has been exceeded. So a uh, Office Inspector General report found that the reported number of U visas granted exceeded the statutory cap by varying amounts from fiscal years 2010 to 2020, which you would think is impossible. It should be, as with most other immigration categories, the government is very particular about monitoring that cap. But with the U visas, uh, the inspector general found that they were not. And so they actually issued more than they were supposed to in certain years. And the USCIS is actually reported that, uh, for instance, in 2017, uh, according to those filing rates for that year, the U.S. CIS receives at least four years worth of visas every fiscal year. And if you're into math, which I'm not very good at, but I can definitely understand this, officials estimate that in 2023, if you submitted your U visa application, um, the wait for it to be approved could be as much as 20 to 30 years because there is a long backlog. So the government, even though there's a cap, will let you file your U visa and begin to get work authorization, but you're going to have to wait in line, uh, so to speak, before you can move on to the final step. So it's rather complicated, like all immigration things. Answer this one for me then, if you would. If there's a 20 or 30 year wait for this visa to ultimately be issued, does any time limit on the visa, you indicated that you know, the visa was essentially good for some period of time and then you know could be more permanent if the person showed kind of ongoing uh, cooperation with law enforcement. Is there any real time limit on the duration of these uh, UNT visas? That's the, the practical 
implication of them is is sort of muddied by this massive waiting time. And the the benefit that they get really is there may be this long wait time until the cases, the visa is granted, but in the meanwhile, they do get work authorization. And in terms of helping out and continuing to provide guidance to the uh, government, that whichever agency or group is involved, I mean, they could still be on the hook for helping out. I think what we see most often, though, is that all agencies, all uh, law enforcement bodies don't let cases go on forever. So at some point, there's just not a need for this person to act as a witness anymore. So they don't tend to have a lot of follow up. In addition to the work authorization that is provided to the recipient of the T or the U visa, are are there any other benefits or advantages to a person having the U or T visa? Yes. So if you are someone who has uh, entered the U.S. without authorization, you were not inspected, and by one means or another, you were able to get into the U.S. and you know you begin working and avail yourself of one of these visas because of the circumstances surrounding your um, life or your employment, you get authorization to remain in the U.S., and you do get the work authorization and any family members that you have will also get that. That is a massive benefit to somebody who otherwise would really have no options. Uh, Somebody who does come here, um, but maybe they overstay their visa and they're just out of status and they don't fit into any other kind of work or family-based category, if this is their circumstance in, in terms of, uh, you know, human trafficking or a certain crime uh, that's been committed or they're alleging it's been committed, you know, the benefit to having this option is also quite significant. And so from a, a practical standpoint, relative to this memorandum of understanding, this MOU, it, is this a significant departure from past practice or is this something that that's not sort of as groundbreaking as newsworthy as it seems to me it is i mean i do think it's newsworthy but to answer your your first question first the agencies that have been in the business of issuing sort of their recommendation or we call it in immigration law certification that somebody uh, get one of these visas. I have included the Department of Labor, um, the EEOC, the NLRB, and then just a variety of other state and local agencies, even courts can issue them, and local police department, state attorneys general, and of course, U.S. and district attorneys, the FBI, Department of State. um, They've been involved in certifying this kind of visa for quite a few years. In fact, I think Department of Labor first started doing this in 2011. And and so it's not entirely new, but I think that the timing of having OSHA involved is just an indication that it is 
very important to the current administration that all people, including somebody who may have found themselves here outside of the standard legal immigration process, be given assurance that the government will hear them if they believe that they are a victim of the certain crimes listed or certainly uh, have been uh, involved in as a victim of human trafficking. And that is um, the message that the government, I believe, is sending by saying, you know, not only are we going to rely on Wage and Hour Division and EEOC, NLRB, and the, and the other various state and local actors to do this, but we're going to we're going to empower more agencies. Um, we're going to give OSHA the power to uh, certify this kind of visa for victims uh, to give that assurance that it's okay to come forward to the government. You know, this is a safe place. Let me ask you this, and, and I mean, I think it's self-evident, but it may bear just, you know, kind of putting a fine point to it, and that is this. What exactly does certification mean with respect to these visas? I mean, is this just somebody with whatever government entity that is doing the certification simply saying, you know, essentially almost like a notary where they're signing off on it saying, yes, I saw this person sign this on this date. This was their story or is there more to it than that? Certification is really the key to anyone being uh, able to get this U or the T visa. And the certification has to come from a designated officer, whether it's in one of the federal agencies or state or local entities. And that officer, when they sign off in a certification, they are saying, this person is a victim of the qualifying criminal activity or you know, the human trafficking. And they are also saying that this person has been or is likely to be helpful in our investigation um, or the prosecution of the bad actors in this criminal activity. And, you know, whenever we've asked, they've been helpful. And of course, they're certifying to all of that under their best belief and their direct knowledge. So it's a very important part of the process. It's very key. And it's definitely where the individual and their representatives, if they have one, start looking to help ensure that they will qualify and can submit the application for the URT visa. So this may be getting a little bit beyond kind of, uh, you know, the scope of, of your practice and, and the scope of your expertise, but your last answer kind of triggered this thought in my mind, which is, you know, it, it, it sounds like at least to some degree or to some extent that the person who's doing the certifying is applying at least some sort of gatekeeping measure about the usefulness of the person's assistance in prosecution of a, a criminal prosecution. Is that a fair assessment or is it just this person is helpful and, and may help with a criminal prosecution or, or, or am I making too much of this? 
No, no, it's a very good point because I mentioned the uh, Inspector General report um, that came out a couple of years ago, and that was one of the things that they identified as a weakness in this program is, you know, why don't we define a little bit better what helpful means? Because there was some confusion, you know, how helpful, um, you know, how often helpful and to what extent. And, and so that is one of the questions that's out there because it's just sort of left open for interpretation at this point. And there could be really wide variations in how somebody who signs off on this understands whether this person is helpful and even the language you know, is likely to be helpful in the investigation. I mean, that, that's pretty broad. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, brings us to another topic that you and I had had uh, wanted to discuss, which is also if there's ever been any kind of misuse of the certification or abuse. You're absolutely right. That is something that we wanted to talk about. And, and we know that with a lot of government programs, you know, it, it's, you know, starts off with some very good intentions and some very lofty goals. And, you know, whether it's, you know, something that a law enforcement agency is administering or, or, or you know, something that a, a social service agency is administering, you know, sometimes the outcome isn't as lofty as, as the intended goal. Uh, do you have any information for our listeners as to, you know, whether there's been any issues relative to abuse of this program and, and, and whether, you know, maybe the, the outcome has fallen short of the, the lofty goals? Yeah, definitely. So as with many immigration cases, the, you know, the benefits of being, being able to live and work in the U.S. are highly valued around the world. And so the desire to have access to that sometimes leads various actors in the immigration process uh, maybe making bad decisions. And uh, the inspector general looked into this and uh, was concerned about the many uh, cases of fraud that they had encountered in their audit of U visa applications. And in particular, what they noticed were a, a significant number of bad uh, certification forms that had been submitted. And that included things like police officials selling fraudulent certifications with false police reports. So that is extremely serious and, you know, something that the police officials gave in to, you know, a desire to make money or to possibly just help someone. But either way, uh, they did it dishonestly, and that was an abuse of the program. Also, they noticed that there were people who were signing off on the certifications who weren't even authorized to do it, but it was passing through the immigration service and, and getting approvals. Um, so that is sort of a housekeeping issue that needed to be reined in. And they also found that uh, representatives of these, you know, victims of, of crimes or human trafficking were substituting pages from legitimate certifications to put into somebody who uh, their application who had no 
certification, who had no documentation to prove that they were a victim of a crime and were helping. And those practitioners were either stealing money from the purported uh, victim or just uh, helping them fraudulently get benefits from the USCIS, the Immigration Service. So, and not to be snarky about this, but it sounds like this program, like most other programs, has, has seen its its fair share of abuse and misuse over the years. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, definitely. And in fact, in 2016, there was a, a large uh, lawsuit in the U.S. Um, that was basically, you know, I mentioned before the crazy long wait times for some of these visas. And the lawsuit was saying, look, you know, this is just an unreasonable delay in government processing. These should be moved through more quickly. And a word sort of got out to law enforcement agencies, and many of them felt like the unreasonable delay lawsuits might kind of reflect poorly on them. And they felt pressure to just sign and not question the certifications. And so even that created another wave of questionable certifications and applications. Lee, you, you and I, when we wrote our blog post, you know, we kind of exchanged different parts of it. And, and, you know, we had some conversation about kind of where we were going with this. And, you know, one of the things that I had mentioned to you is the fact that while OSHA compliance officers are in a sort of limited way, law enforcement from the standpoint of enforcing regulations that are promulgated by OSHA, they are not law enforcement from the standpoint of they, they don't enforce criminal law. And to me, it seems in light of the fact that part of the analysis is one of the materiality of the cooperation to criminal prosecution, it would seem to me that even without any sort of nefarious or or illicit um, motivations behind it, if you have non-law enforcement personnel certifying these visas, that, you know, in, in terms of that component of, of their ability to judge whether or not, you know, this is something that is going to help with a criminal prosecution or not, it, it strikes me that, that this is potentially even more troublesome than sort of true law enforcement officers certifying their, these visas. What's your thought about that? I think that the best example we have uh, you know to go from would be uh, the wage and hour division. They've been using these for quite a few years now, and they have crafted their use of the program fairly narrowly, just in the way that the the applicant or the individual, the employee who says that you know something has has come up under, uh, the minimum wage or overtime complaint, for instance, the the ensuing criminal activity or surrounding criminal activity has to kind of be within that so that uh, you wouldn't find wage and hour division just, you know, being asked to opine on whether one of the other enumerated crimes had taken place that is way out of their jurisdiction, way out of their uh, scope of, of knowledge. But it could happen. I mean, it's certainly we've seen that there are just different ways to bend the rules 
and make decisions that aren't the best. And so sometimes when agents are under pressure, that could possibly happen. Well, kind of following up on my prior question and, and your answer, you know, do you have any thoughts about the certification process being used in conjunction with workplace health and safety investigations conducted by OSHA compliance officers? Well, I think that it's going to be very important for the OSHA compliance officers to, um, you know, strike a really uh, healthy balance where employees are being encouraged to come forward with their allegations. Um, We see at the wage and hour division that uh, the regional coordinators do interview these, these employees who come forward with their own allegations and at the very threshold make a decision on whether or not the factors involved in certification are present or not. And um, that is a really key point for um, the OSHA agency to think about in terms of training, being really clear on what its mission is and and all the parties involved, including uh, the employer that's going to be implicated in this. Because, you know, not only can OSHA uh, you know, follow its its guidelines in terms of what compliance uh, investigations look like, but it may be required as the story unfolds uh, to refer underlying criminal activity to whatever the appropriate law enforcement agents, agency is. And so there are many different players and um, the allegations um are serious and can lead to some really serious places. And of course, the government does want to be sensitive to individuals who are victims and are taking a chance on reaching out for help. But at the same time, it's going to be really important to review those allegations at the outset to make the determination on what the best path is forward. Well, Lee, it's been Great having you here. Um, I've got one more question, and then we'll wrap up this podcast. In, in terms of you know, kind of following up on that last answer, and, and, and I really liked what you had to say, and, and I thought it was very thoughtful. Do you have any similar types of, of suggestions or recommendations for employers who now know that this certification process is out there and that it may be part of a workplace health and safety investigation by OSHA? Yes, I do. At the core of this is, you know, usually the employee who is not authorized to be in the U.S. or to work. And those employees are very, very vulnerable. If not directly from the employer themselves, from others around them, and from outside forces. And the system that we have in the U.S. right now, and and we've had it for quite a few years since 1986, to determine whether somebody is authorized to work or not is the I-9 form that you complete at onboarding. And so it is very important that everybody who is working for you is currently authorized to work mostly because it's required by the law, but also because it can help you identify situations where somebody is vulnerable. 
Um, they're, they're vulnerable to bad actors throughout the system. And that could be anybody from a manager that's within the company who knows that the person is not authorized to work, but is taking advantage of their knowledge to uh, get money or inappropriate favors from the employee. And, and that's not good for anyone and not good to have on the employer's work site. The other thing, though, that's uh, harder to control but equally as important is what others are doing. Who is on your work site? What are contractors doing with regard to I-9 verification and their own employees? Very important to understand what your legal requirements are for having contractors on your site. You're not allowed to turn a blind eye to their uh, introduction of unauthorized workers on your site, just as you're not to them uh, being abusive or committing any other kind of, you know, inappropriate workplace conduct towards the people that they send to work on your site. So that that's a real area of concern that we have is um, not always from the employer's direct relationship with employees, but from the conduct of third parties at the employer site. It's been a bona fide pleasure to have you on this podcast. Uh, much as I enjoy you being my office mate, I, I enjoyed you joining me for this podcast. This has been incredibly informative, and I thank you so much for being here. Well, it's been my pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you. And until next time to our podcast audience, be safe and we'll be seeing you soon. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.